Hey, good afternoon, everyone. We're looking back at the Manhood Book by uh, The Masculine Virtues That America Needs by Josh Hawley. Remember, Josh Hawley is a senator uh, from, I think it's Missouri. And um, is that right? Can we remember that? Yep. Yes. Okay. And we're looking at chapter number six of his book. Mike, what's the, um, the focus of this chapter? He's going to be talking us through where he's finding in the Bible about being a father and how that should be lived out in today's culture in America and that it's not. He opens up with um, kind of a really personal story concerning his own wife, whose name is Erin, and uh, their first, I guess it was a miscarriage. Yeah. yeah she lost the baby, and, and he really talks about how that wasn't as much of a difficult thing for him as it was her. He seems to be real honest and transparent. Then he moves from there to the reality that she did get pregnant and they had their first son and his name is Elijah. Um, any thoughts about what he does there that we need to talk about? Well, I thought his summary on page 89 after the story about having the miscarriage right there at the top in the first paragraph, he says, fatherhood was not something that I could control. And it was not an ornament to decorate my life. Not something to possess, but something that uh, would possess me. Not something I could use to complete my life, but a role that would transform my life into something altogether different and new. And I really thought that was spot on. That you know, fatherhood is not something light. You know, it's not something that we should take for granted or think that you know we're all going to ace it um, or be given it. Yeah. Yeah, and he brought that out that it's a gift, and then just realizing you're going to make mistakes along the way, but just persevering through that and realizing that when you do make the mistakes, you apologize and learn from them and continue to do better. He makes a point right there with, with page 88, um, second full paragraph, that he he mentions that he had wanted to be a father from the time he was a teenager. Um, and as, you know, just thinking through that, you know, because as he read the, you know, I read the miscarriage portion, you know, and if your wife has ever had one, you know, that kind of emulates within, within you. Um, but I don't recall as, as a teenager really looking forward to that day of being a dad, even as a college student. And so I, you know, I thought I'd ask the room at least, you know, like, was that you? Did you guys, like, understand completely what Josh is saying? And he was like, oh, yeah, I wanted to be a dad from, from the get-go. Now, he's talking about all these men he looked up to and all that. Like, yes, like, I, I was on board with that, coaches, you know, et cetera. But because he said from the time I was a teenager, maybe even before, I had wanted to be a father. I did. I did. Yeah, I think I did in the sense of wanting to keep a family together and do what hadn't been done for you. Yeah, that's what I wanted. Not yeah, me. I, no. You didn't think about it? No, I just wanted a girl. I, I wanted one of those. Yeah. yeah. I guess I'm in the I mean, middle. And I knew that that came with you wanted it. a girl subconsciously. <laughs> <the boy. laughs> But I didn't sit around and ponder someday when I'm going to be a dad, would it be a good one, what I do? Nah, nothing. See, yeah, I did. I mean, there were a lot of things. Like when I was in college, I can remember, you know, dating Beth and thinking, you know, as a husband, as a father, 
you know, things I thought my mom and dad did well and things that they didn't do very well or that I wish they'd done differently and how I was going to attempt to do that differently. And just because they had done it one way didn't mean I had to fall in the same trap and do the same thing. And I wanted to break a couple cycles because I knew from things my mom and dad had said about my dad's parents and grandparents and how they had treated children it was kind of that cycle and i was like you know i just don't want to i don't want to go down that road i can remember my my grandfather you know he it was probably one summer i guess brian i was it was seventh grade i know it was seventh grade because i had to leave i always went there in the summer and i had to leave early to get back for football physicals so it was going into seventh grade, and I was complaining about my father to him. And he, and he said, I want you to look at it two ways. At this point in your life, you still have a father to complain about. Because by that time, his father had left. Uh, yours is stuck around longer than some fathers do. Uh, and two, you can start thinking right now, and learning everything that you don't want to be in a father. Mm-hmm. And from that point forward, I began thinking about being a father. So I was 12 turning 13 uh, when it really dawned on me to start considering what a good father would be. Yeah, I guess I'm in the middle there that I pondered it some, but not to the level that you guys are describing it, but more than what Jonathan was thinking about it. Yeah, John said no. Yeah, he said yeah. Well, I mean, I had the occasional, I'm not going to do that like my dad right. did it. Well, yeah. <clears> I wonder, that so out. in some way, yes, but not. I wonder if that has to do with upbringing, though. Yeah, and I was going to say, my family was not very vocal or sherry with their feelings. I never had conversations with my dad about how he was brought up. Nothing on those, everything was just kind of factual and it's actually been the one of the enjoyments of my older age is that my dad has been more open with me now and and I you know, get the inner workings and the and the thought behind you know his life before and now than ever when we were children my, John, my dad didn't share much of that it was my mom that was, or my would, mom would in share fact, it I would like say my mom you know less than my dad my yeah, and then she was that. more the peacekeeper of you know you know, your dad does this because that's how he was treated, how he, his dad was treated, and that's all he knows. And, you know, let's, you know, we, you know, whatever, trying to bridge the gap. Well, when I said upbringing, what I meant was the idea, because, Jonathan, you grew up in a very independent, fundamental, whole family together household. You know, you, your family had a, a drug problem. You were drugged to church you know, <laughs> three times a week, Okay, which is very much how I grew up. But, Doc, your dad got saved when you were, I mean, correct? I was like five, yes. Okay. So, whereas, like, my dad has been a believer since long before. So, that's what I was saying is more of, if you grew up, I just took it for, for granted that my dad was just there, that this broken families weren't something that I, that I had to deal oh, with. Yeah. And I, so I knew nobody divorced. Nobody. That, it was, that it was more of, like, I don't really know what I have, therefore I don't appreciate or look forward to this. Is more of what I was suggesting in the idea of the upbringing, that not having the role model with every, you know, how you would like it to be, that maybe that's what would cause someone to be thinking more so about whether or not they wanted to be a father. Yeah, my dad went, my dad and mom went to counseling when I was, right before I turned 15. And 
they went to counseling for their marriage. And, and by this time, I'd already seen fist fights at the dinner table. I remember one night my mother stabbed my father with a fork uh, right in his arm. And he jumped up and pulled the fork out and hit her with the back of his plate. And it drove her into the uh, kitchen sink, shattering all the dishes. And that just went into a fight right there on the floor. Um, you know, you grow up like that, and it's, it's what it is. And, but my dad, and then they went to counseling, and somehow or another my dad decided through this counseling that he couldn't change, he would never be good enough. So the best solution was, and this is one of the last things he said to me when, when he moved out of the home, he come to me and he said, and I'll never forget these words, I've put too much of myself into you, and so I don't ruin you further, I'm leaving. Mm. That's one of the last things he said. What is your relationship with him like today? Well, he's dead, so there's not much one. But um, before that, it was, you know, it was cordial, you know, the surface level interactions and stuff. I even lived with him for a while when he became disabled and cared for him in my upper high school years, but it was more of a place to sleep, check on him, make sure he's okay, but it wasn't anything interactive that you would think of in a relationship that should be father-son. It was more like caregiver person. Page 91, The Crisis of Fatherhood. Mm -hmm. He gives some phenomenal statistics. Yeah, Brian, share them. Um, so, the couple that I had underlined, approximately 18.4 million children um, in the United States live without a father in the home. That's one in four in this country that has doubled since the 1960s. 32% of boys under 18 are now growing up without biological father in the home. Um, <clears throat> another one was that the U.S., and this is one that I guess I should have known, but I just didn't realize but the United States has the world's highest rate of children living in single-parent households. Globally, about 7% of children live in a household with just one parent. In America, that number is more than three times higher, so over 21% mm -hmm. in a single-parent household. Um, then he goes on, you know, the stuff that I was already tracking that, um, like, the, the poverty rate above 50%, um, if they're rate being raised in a single-parent household, um, those are just the ones that I had. Marked. Delinquency, drug use, depression. Right. Uh, it Early. also it also leads to uh, crime. But before he even got to the crime, sexual he was saying the sexual assault. Um, you can you can almost take any prostitute, male or female, any sex worker of any type within the sex trade. And you can probably trace it back to an absentee father home uh, because the entire industry is built, built on daddy issues. And the, um, the whole thing will come down to a sense of abandonment and lack of self-worth that comes from the lack of a father. And then there's the other one with the crime and also the, and not just petty crimes, but the higher the crime goes, towards homicide, and this all comes from my dissertation research, the, the more you get towards homicide and everything else, 
and the rage, especially in the males, it comes from this idea of not having a male figure and having this deep-seated anger that's always there just brewing. Wow. He'll bring out later in the chapter that uh, if there are a few males in the neighborhood, yeah. it reduces it. Right. If they are stable, true, solid, male role models, father-type figures that uh, can reduce that, and Deacon Creek uh, also tied that into his research in that it can happen within a school system if the school system has enough male teachers, particularly in the secondary schools. Secondary is seventh grade and above, Jack? What yep. is secondary? Yep, seventh grade and above Yeah. when they're teenagers. He says, according to our modern-day Epicureans, you are only really an individual if you throw off constraints and choose your own life path. You know, like maybe like I, I did it my way. <laughs> um, discard whatever holds you back, family, religion, tradition, do as you please, satisfy yourself. That's the Epicurean way at the heart of modern liberalism and by extension modern culture. What it amounts to in practice, however, is choosing to live for yourself or for a very peculiar version of yourself. It is a version of you divorced from history, your family, your home, your traditions, in short, from the things that help make ourselves to begin with. Yeah, anytime he mentions or, or points out stuff about the Epicurean philosophy, it's just good stuff. I mean, I underlined on the next page um, in, in, in the first paragraph there, instead, modern liberals, you know, quoting, talking about the Epicurean idea of being individualistic, that you just read about, Pastor. Instead, modern liberals pretend the world can be remade entirely around our unfettered personal choice. Okay, and so... That's not every commercial you see. I don't know what is. Okay, so now comes the question. I know the chapter is about men stay, you know, get married, raise a family, stay with your family, and do these godly things. Otherwise, the, first, the chapter preceding this wouldn't have been husband. Right? Mm -hmm. But what do we do with the people of the statistics who have no self-worth, who have no identity, who have no place? I mean, so I'm 16. My mother's remarried to a stepfather who who thought I was smoking, even though I wasn't smoking, convinced I was, so he reaches into my car and pulls me out through the drive, driver's window and chokes me till I pass out in the street while banging my head into the asphalt. From that point forward, I lived in my car for a year until I finally settled in with living with friends while taking myself through high school and working two jobs. When I was old enough, I went and knocked on my mom's door and asked her to sign the paperwork so I could go in the Army at 17. Finished high school and I was gone. Because <coughs> there there, they wanted me. And there I found a place and an identity. So I broke the statistics. What do you do with the people that don't? I mean, I understand we got to bring the gospel to them, and everything else, but can you imagine how hard it is for them not to be Epicureans? 
when they have when they have no foundational background. And that's where a relationship to me is foundational that we have to invest in people. And that's why I think um, sports programs, music programs, things that are have to be consistent, where the guy has to show up consistently to coach you, um, to direct you, those kind of things, can be places, um, especially like after school programs, inner cities, people who dedicate their lives to that, where the 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 man, you know, I'm here every Tuesday and we're gonna, you know play basketball or whatever it is, or I'm here every Tuesday and we're going to do X, Y, or Z. Um, things that require some kind of steady scheduling are, are worthwhile as solutions. And when you talk about solutions, I think. Yeah. I think that's so hard to hear, Jack. That I think that's why we're the silence in the room is because of what you're describing. Yeah, and I get that. I'm not trying to bring the podcast down. I'm just... It's the reality that they're the people out there, and like I said, I, it's by God's hand that that you know you you get through what you get through. And um, this, I think the struggle is there's many folks that grew up in that scenario. They didn't have the drive or the desire to break the cycle like you did and do something about it. They well, just I had cont- aunts and uncles that I could turn to here and there. Right, but the majority just continue in the. Re- I don't even know what word to they use for it. other statistics. Yeah, they become right. well, the, and, the, and the they, negative side of what he's right. describing. They continue in that, and they, you know, they they don't they don't see the need to come out of it or do anything with their lives or do anything better. And when even when someone tries to encourage them to do that, they resist because it's well, that's not you know, I, my grandmother didn't do that, my mother didn't do that. This is how I was brought up, and you know they're okay. You know they're not in, you know they're not drug addicts or in jail, and so they just don't see a need to really further produce, you know, be further um, productive in life. Yep. And so the status quo is okay with them because that's all they know, and they, you know, it's hard for them to break out of that. And I think that's why it's important for churches like ours to find other churches in the in the rural, rural um, in the urban community, especially downtown communities uh, where these pockets exist, uh, and, and find a way to partner with them um, to make their ministries able to continue to reach in to these communities. And I, I know, Steve, the numbers that you're going to pull out aren't going to be astronomical, but every soul saved is a soul saved. Right. Yeah. But I also think that we, in our even our own community, have a quiet crisis, and that is, you know, your stories of abuse are, are really striking and terrible. However, there's another form of abuse, which is just absenteeism, yeah. where the dad just, you know, gives the computer to the boy Sends him in his room for seven, eight years and never really talks to him. Undeveloped. Does, doesn't check on him. Doesn't pass any of that um, fatherly wisdom on to him because he's busy chasing whatever else it is. Work, you know, you know, in some kind of hobby, fishing, racing, um, and, and hasn't included his son with him on those things. So, I mean, it's, it's probably more the scenario in our circles, I would say, than maybe your story. Right. Which comes to the next point. He says, you know, fatherhood is a work of sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, so on Saturday I took Autumn 
to a rec game. She was a fellow student, and she wanted to watch her fellow student play. Basketball? Yep. Okay. okay. And um, so we were sitting there in the stands, and the father of this daughter, okay, and I'm not saying anything that anyone will be able to make any connections, right? She, he has his son there. All right, so he's got a daughter on the court, and he's there, and his son is there. And the son is five years old. And the son has a cell phone at five years old. And he's on there for over an hour on the cell phone playing games. And I'm battling with Autumn to get her to focus on the basketball game because Autumn, we didn't come to look at the video game. We came to watch the basketball game. And so every time the girl comes on the court, right, I'm saying, she's playing. Get your eyes off the video. She's playing, right? And then the magnet, the, the, the cell phone is like a, yeah. like it just draws them in. You know what I mean? And, and um, but the dynamic was I'm sitting right behind the dad. And the boy is crawling all over the dad, poking. I mean, the boy wants his dad's attention. He wants to wrestle. He want, and his dad doesn't move. For an hour, there's no talking to the son. There's no affirmation. There's no wrestling. There's no grabbing him and bringing him around and loving on. It's nothing. And it's the cell phone that's the dad. Right? Mm -hmm. So fast forward. We're now going to go to their house, and we're going to ride bikes together on the street. Spend a little bit more time, right? So the dad's watching from his car, and the boy is trying to ride a bike while holding his cell phone. Wow. Because he can't give up the cell phone. And the dad doesn't see a problem with, son, give me that cell phone. Ride your bike. It's like we need dad college or something. Right, right, right. Like... <laughs> He probably learned it from dry, his dad driving and texting and looking on the cell phone. So he's got this big cell phone, tiny little bike with training wheels. Nobody's teaching him how to ride without training wheels. And he can't do it safely because he's trying to hold on to his cell phone. And Okay, so, I mean, we just heard all the statistics of a boyhood crisis. And now I just gave you like a, a live action picture the boy has a problem talking, but he never hears anyone talk. His, his, his dad's not talking to him. He doesn't learn English. He doesn't learn words. He doesn't learn vocabulary. This book in my office, it's called The Boy Crisis. It's a secular book. Remember I mentioned this yes. a couple months ago? Yep. And several people in the congregation did not like the book because it's so secular. There's nothing Christian about the book whatsoever. But it's chapter after chapter of his statistics, only expanded beyond comprehension. I mean, these guys are PhDs, and that's all they do. So here's one thing that they study, Jack. If your children grow up with dads, their vocabulary will be far exceeded. <clears throat> A child without a dad, statistically, hands down, no, like, n not controlled for socioeconomic. It doesn't matter if there's a male present and there's children, their vocabulary would be through the roof. And 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 the observation was, dads don't talk baby to kids. Dads expect the kids to figure it out. Like, I'm not giving you the word and the definition. 
I'm just giving you the word. Mm. And you better figure out what the definition is. Yeah. Or there'll be consequences. Just hand me the ratchet. Right. I'm not telling you what a ratchet is. You right. figure it out but right you now. Figure, right. But, you know, that's a small example. But um, it was interesting to having read it and then read it. And then see it. And then see it. And think to yourself, if things don't change, that boy doesn't have a fighting chance. The world turns into the movie Wally. He doesn't have a fighting chance. I don't remember that movie. I mean, I knew I watched it. Okay, so it wasn't movie, very impactful. I it, guess it's on. You can watch it on Disney Plus. But the whole premise of the of the movie Wally is that we've gone so technologically driven that people have they sit in these floating chairs with their own personal screens in front of them, and a Siri type individual caters to every need. And the world has got it's it's a save the earth movie. But the world has become uninhabitable because we've just wasted it. And so now everyone is morbidly obese and they live in a spaceship and they send robots back trying to, you know, see if the earth can be re-inhabited um, at any point in time. But the focal point is the robot and his friend that he meets. But it is clearly a, a view of this is what society is going to continue to go towards, is technology will increase and laziness will increase, and eventually we're going to be completely isolated, and we'd rather look at simulated pictures of the beach than go to the beach. We, we want to have right. technology right. do all sure. those things sure. for us and not be interested in, in the real world. And, and yet, on, and in some kind of ironic way, um, outdoor sporting um, goods stores are exploding. Or, or I don't know if they're on the trend up now, but they were on the trend you know, uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, was it uh, maybe 35, even longer? <laughs> I, I get a lot the time is. But you remember the Bill Cosby show, right? Yes, sir. And, and they opened a sporting goods store. That wasn't a thing back then, right? Right. It was just like, and he thought it was a crazy thing, right? You know, you stop being a doctor or a lawyer to be, open a sporting goods store. Well, I mean, if they saw a Dick's Sporting Goal or Field of Stream now or, or Academy, it'd be like, okay, that's a wise financial decision. So, you know, over the past 30-plus years, that, that kind of industry and, you know, uh, fishing, hiking, boating, and all that is kind of, and probably maybe in balance because we feel this the thing about being isolated screen. So I'm interested to see what happens in the next 20 or 30 years if it keeps on a glide path up or if it dies off. But I think it's dying off. But because even our like even our local I know community ours, here. Yeah. I mean, in a community where there would be guys who would all be all about guns. Yeah. But there's some place like there's a some field and stream in Cabela's that are just, yeah, anyway. That's because those companies have chosen not to sell guns. Yeah, as I say, Dick's yeah. redid their whole store and took out all the guns. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, but we had the other one, oh, Gander oh, Mountain or whatever it yeah. was, that didn't Is do that well. Yeah, well, that's because it was against Dick's. Yeah. Their prices were so high and Dick's were so low. Let's listen to this sentence. Fatherhood stands as an impediment to this misguided ethic, this is because fatherhood is a work of sacrifice. Yeah, it is all about the surrendering of your life to someone else, giving someone else first priority. Think again of Abraham. The call to become a father became the call to leave his kindred, his place of safety, and all that was comfortable and familiar, and set out towards something new, something he had not himself chosen or planned. Whatever ideas Abraham may have had for his life before were upset and overturned by God's call to become a father. I'm with that, with one caveat, that technically the chapter before when we talked about being the husband, 
that's when the person of first priority, our spouse, our wife, and then children become that second priority. Because I see failure within many dads that they give too much focus to the children and don't focus on the wife. Mothers too. You know, and so I, I just want that to add that caveat in. I know he's talking in this chapter about children and fatherhood, so that's why he used that language. But yeah. I still just want to Mike, correct do you, it. Do you also think maybe it's be there's just this natural understanding that the wife can handle herself in, in a sense like she can she can provide for herself. She she knows how to feed herself. She could take herself someplace. She's an adult. Yeah. So as opposed to like if I don't do this for my child, it will not be done. They will not learn to do it. They cannot do it. They don't have the recesses resources or the the maturity or the development to be able to do something like this. Which yeah. is more what I was understanding when I when I read it. <coughs> and that's where I'll give in and say yes. But yet, I just want to remind us and bring us back to God gave us a priority of him first, wife second, children third. you got to keep the balance. I mean, I used to tell my daughters all the time, I, they're like, why can't we go on a date with you and mom? Or why can't we do this? Why can't you do this? And I said, because someday you're going to get married. You're going to marry a man. He's going to become your husband, and you're going to go on dates with him. And you're going to have a family, and you're all going to spend time together. And me and your mom need to have a relationship when that happens because we're going to spend many more years together once y'all are gone. And you're going to have your own individual lives. Well, what's interesting about what you just said, Jack, is when y'all are gone. We don't even use that language anymore. I mean, that's why we have 30-year-olds. Am I wrong? I mean, Mike, you smile, but am I wrong? Yep. I mean, I understood. I was 18. Like, you can live, but you can't live here, you know? I mean, it, 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 was, it, was, I mean, it was just understood. I mean, you go to college, you join the Army, but you don't get to keep living here. Now, I know that sounds incredibly harsh, but the pushback has now become that, you know, Parents are taking their kids to court and getting the court to issue the edict to move the kid out mm -hmm. of the house. I know that sounds insane, but that is a reality. Yeah. And no, it's I actually was in court and a mom was you know, back when I had rental properties, I actually was in court and a mom was there asking the magistrate to evict her daughter. And he looked at her and he he was like like, you know, he asked anyway, it was it was a funny story, but you know, the the mom said her thing, and she never said my daughter. So then he asked the defendant, you know, he said, you know, do you have anything to add? And, he, and she goes, I guess not. She's my mama. And he said, what? And he goes, you know, she goes, and yeah, then he was like, is that is that true? And the mom said, yes, sir. And he goes, well, why didn't you just throw her stuff in the front yard and change the locks? <laughs> he goes, you don't need to be here. <laughs> He's, and he, he ruled in the mom's favor and told the daughter, he goes, you need to get out. <laughs> So back to what you read, I totally agree with him that life as a father is a work of sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why that's why fewer men are entering into this life. I mean, that's why they're, they're not getting married. If they do get married, they're getting married at a later age. And then they may or may not have children. And if they do have children, 
they're having the least amount possible. I mean, these are all the that that's where we're at. Yeah. Well, and he and he takes us that direction because he says the fatherhood is the business of replacing yourself. Right. But then on page ninety four, um, as he starts talking through what you were just saying, Pastor, about um, men maybe not having children. You know, he um, told us a story about a, of a former student, and when he suggested, I'm about halfway down in that large paragraph, um, when I suggested this was an exciting possibility about having a, a child, <coughs> he demurred, it's not a good time, he said. And this is someone that is well into being married, well into childbearing, you know, having a child and all this. And so I was just ironic as I, as I was thinking about it, reading through this, it's like, you know, we don't bring children into the world when we should, and when we're bringing them, but we also bring children into the world that we shouldn't, and then we want to abort them because they're coming into the world. Mm-hmm. And it's just this this unique dynamic that our, our secular world is experiencing in the lives that they live, and it's, I don't want to bring in children because now it's not a good time. Oops, we're bringing a child into the world, and it wasn't a good time, so we're going to stop that child from coming in. Well, yeah. that's where his statement at the bottom of that paragraph, fatherhood meant unwelcome responsibility. Right. And, and that describes what you're talking about right there. I don't want the responsibility for my actions. <clears throat> I don't want to be responsible for someone else to be able to survive. There's okay. never a good time. And if you think that the sexual revolution is just between two consenting adults, think again. Yeah, yeah, of course, absolutely. I mean, just all those children who have to bear these consequences of the selfish behavior. Anything else in this uh, chapter that we need to talk about? What do you think, you know, uh, on page 95, we talk about the value of humility. It tags back into uh, some of the things we talked about in the beginning about thinking, you know, we can do things better than our parents, we can do things better than our father. And I think some of us in the room did make some improvements along the way along those lines. But he also talks about here, you know, that we need to make sure that we're being humble in that uh, because I was not seeing my short shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Took me uh, years. Yeah, and, and so I've had to go back and apologize for things that I was not willing to look at as I was in the midst of, of fathering Matthew and Kinsey. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I should have been more humble along the way, so hopefully I would have seen that or listened to somebody point it out to me better sooner faster. Yeah. I've gone back. I've apologized for the times where I got life out of balance. But um, you asked if there's any more. In the last few pages, he talks about a legacy to last. Mm-hmm. And... Brian, it kind of goes back to something that you were talking about, too, with this idea of the mother and why, and I talked about the dating of the mom and having a relationship later on. Um, Here's a fact of life that we all have to become comfortable with and this idea of legacy to last. Um, There's going to come a point where you live most of your life or there's going to come a point where you live a portion of your life by yourself. If if you if your wife goes before you, I mean it's just it's the reality of it, and you will know um, because your family is going to have time to come see you, sure, but they're still going to be living their lives and, and things of that nature. So you have to build a relationship that you're welcome to come to them, 
You're not waiting for them to come to you. Um, so with that in mind, I've already been thinking about, okay, how am I going to make it where Vivian it wants me around when I'm just a, yeah, but, a little mean, old man? Let's be honest, Jack. You're not going to yeah. outlive Angela. Well. <laughs> okay, she eats healthier than you. She exercises better. Doesn't okay. matter. You never know. A, so there might be a bus with her. <laughs> I don't know. You never know. Go ahead. Things, <laughs> things get slipped into food. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. There is an option that could Yeah, but but yes, but 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 the thing of it is, is okay. So her parents go grocery shopping every Saturday morning, and she's now getting to the point where she can start talking and understanding things. So we've already made the agreement that I'm going to take her out for breakfast on Saturday mornings while they do grocery shopping. Right. This is my opportunity because I know right now in her life until I can get her father moved <clears throat> into a more spiritual position, you are the I, I, I am the spiritual person yeah. to lead in that realm, sure. and it's going to be my opportunity to build that. Yeah. And, and, but her father does a great job in pick up, clean up, you know, be responsible. Uh, he, he, he's doing a really good job there. I just wish he... And he goes would, to work every day. He goes to work every day. He's providing well. Providing well. Lot, lot, I mean, lots of very po- positive, positive things. things. Right. He just, he's there. He just needs a spiritual Focus. balance. Well, he needs to get saved. Right. So I'm going to work there. Right. And that's going to develop a relationship that later in life, when I'm older, I'm not seen as this useless old guy that I hardly know, the silly old grandpa. I'm yeah, a, hopefully. A, hopefully a person in her life that means something. Yeah. And, and it's that's the idea of this legacy building mm-hmm. uh, when he talks about a great nation. I'm not going to live with my kids. Yeah. Be, no, no, I don't want to go I'll live do, with I'll my kids. I, I just want to. I'll, I'll be doing breaks till I'm 100. <laughs> I, I don't want to go live with them. I'm just saying I want to be able to go visit. None of my, none of my boys are real kids. Is that what you said, John? <laughs> <laughs> Is it you? Never mind. We won't go there on the podcast. <laughs> I did. I did enjoy. What, it. what did particularly you think about the temple language? Were you guys okay with that? You know, I've never been comfortable with that through the whole book, but. But again, we, I come back to, we've come to the understanding he's not a theologian. He, he's a layman using God's word. And so he's not being tight enough in some areas, but yet he is not abusing the word. He's not drifting into heresy. Yeah. I just wonder when he says that is building his family, is how Abraham will build the temple of God, started in Eden. His family will be the temple or part of it, part of the restored creation an emblem of what the world could be. And God's purpose, we are told, is that this family, this little outpost should grow and expand and carry the light of faith with it. Well, it is something interesting that we have not really discussed in in depth. Um, In all the past weeks, we've been discussing the covenants and the Mm -hmm. temple and that kind of thing, is when does, you know, because we said, you know, the body, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when does that cease and when does it become that we're in the, the new heaven and new earth and there's no need of, of, of the sun because Jesus is the light and there's no need of the temple because Jesus is the eternal sacrifice and there's no need of all this. Or, or, you know, it, do, at that point, are our temp, the bodies the temple anymore? In the, first, really in, the, in, the first, that. in the first Peter Lively stones? Right. But in some metaphoric way, we still are. James language right there. 
Yeah. Sorry, it just yeah. came out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are living stones in every other translation as opposed to lively. But yeah, but the concept, you know, that the people... Yeah, are, I would say the answer to your question, if I had to answer that, John, would be when we receive our glorified spiritual mm-hmm. bodies and this all sin has been removed, then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not the priority that it was. I mean, this the Spirit is a down payment. It's an earnest, right? Mm-hmm. An earnest for what? Well, I would say it is the completion of our salvation. You know, the idea of the past, present, and future salvation. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. Um, And so that's where I would go back to that. And I would say the effects that he is describing is who we need to be and what we need to be creating as far as a legacy family that is a light in this dark world. Yes, but what he doesn't talk about here, um, Mike, and I know he's not a theologian, but... Where does the gospel become central to the paragraph in moving the family? Okay, if you're the best dad in the world and all your kids die and go to hell, okay, then then you're a failure in, in that sense. You, you, I mean, you see, I'm, yes, this book is a half step. It, it's a step of morality, not of relationship. And that's a big failure. But he's he's trying to balance worlds of will unbelievers read this if it's gospel forward and so from his perspective he's trying to write a book that won't be so gospel forward that it would turn them off yeah almost christian nationalism though mike but he he, he's hoping i think that by pointing out these elements that are in the bible that people will start reading the bible and then the holy spirit through reading the Bible, will make change. Yeah, I think you're... You're being kind. I am. Well, maybe we should ask him. Can we ask him? Yeah, that's a great... I'm going to send him in a letter. See if he'll respond. Maybe, maybe he'll even join us for a podcast. No, I doubt the senator from um, Missouri is going to give us a minute of his time. But the, building his family is how Abraham would build the temple of God started in Eden. Okay, well, let's, let's just kind of remember, because... You were just reading the Four Seeds book, um, Brian, which is a great book for everybody to read, and you can get it on Amazon. But um, Ishmael is not part of the temple, and his grandson Esau is not part of the temple. Okay, and why are they not part of the temple? Well, they didn't embrace the covenant, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't embrace the covenant, and um, and 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 you do have to be honest and say that that. Within the boundaries of election, they were not elect. Right. I mean, it says it right in there. You can't get away from it. Right. You can't get away from it. (laughs) Yet, there is a human culpability that also has to be addressed. You can't get away from that either. Unfortunately. You can't. Right. I mean, where was Isaac in the leadership role with both his boys? Uh, we, we, We just don't know. And where was Israel... Jacob in the leadership role with all 12 of his boys. Now, you want to read a bizarre chapter, read about the defilement of Dinah in Genesis mm-hmm. and, and how Jacob just remained silent. 37. Chapter 37. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it is a, it's an entire chapter about a failure of male leadership. And it's just it, so reminiscent of David in that, that whole incident. Oh, it's very, it's, yeah, it's crazy reminiscent, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's almost the most honorable men in the chapter are the pagans. 
And that's where... And the most warrior men in the chapter are the wimps. Yeah. When, when, when we read the Bible, we have to be honest about they're not all perfect in every way. And so we need to make sure that we're looking constantly at our own lives. Maybe we're more godly in this area, but there's this other area, and we need to be more godly, more Christ-like in that. What was true for Abraham can be true for us. A man's family can be a garden in the wilderness, a place of safety, a flourishing where there is order and predictability and hope for the future. This is not speculation. This is fact. Researchers have ample documented that families with involved and present fathers are the greatest vehicles for human achievement known to man. I mean, that, that's, that's all very, very good from a pragmatic perspective. Children from intact families with present involved fathers have higher IQs, intelligent beings. We now know a developmental fact as well as a genetic one. They acquire language earlier, start school more advanced, better prepared than their peers who lack fathers in the home. The trend continues as the children age. Kids are 43% more likely to earn A grades and a third less likely to repeat a grade if their dads are present. Mm-hmm. I mean that pragmatically that's as good as it gets and the reality is Mike a Mormon a Jehovah Witness a Catholic a Muslim a Christian can all read that that those paragraphs and go man that fires me up right mm-hmm. um, twice as likely to graduate from college and he just goes on and on and gives us all the statistics and that's where you know I think his goal is the half step if he could get the American culture to that point, then he, it's reaching what we need at the moment. Right. And falling short of the whole step. Well, then they die and go to hell. Needing, yes, needing the gospel. But we'll have a better time before we get Correct. It. But it is getting America back to being a moralistic nation. That's his desire, I think. Well, we should ask him. We're going to ask him. The dinosaur was Genesis 34, not 37. So just yeah, my correction. 37 is Tamar. Mm. Yes. Or Joseph. Joseph's dreams. Oh, yeah. It's the chapter. Yeah, 38 is 38. Tamar. Yeah. yeah, it's the most bizarre interruption. Because yeah. you, you meet Joseph, and then all of a sudden you turn the page for your morning devotions, and you're like, wow, I didn't want to read this story this morning. <laughs> okay, anything else on this chapter? Nope. All right, chapter number seven is titled Warrior. So our men here on Fort Liberty, formerly called Fort Bragg, should be able to relate to this. I think it's another great chapter, um, but falling a half a step short. You know, um, if you want to, by the way, if you've never read the book Tender Warrior, that's an excellent book, and it won't fall uh, a half a step. Is anyone in the room besides me read it? Long time ago. Yeah, it's an older book. It's definitely an older book, but it is really really good it's called tender warrior and it it kind of projects the idea that you can be a solid believer and be a man that you that you don't have to sacrifice one or the other i remember reading it as a soldier and just like just thoroughly just sucking it up going wow this is an amazing book uh seems like the first name was Stuart, but i i'm i'm not positive on that but if you yeah that was either his first name or last name well, we'll figure that out, and then we'll, we'll have it ready next for week. You. We'll have Brian put that in the notes. Yep, a link to that book. Okay. Anything else, Mike, on this chapter? Nope, I'm good. All right. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll tune in next week for Chapter Seven: 
a warrior, and we are going to reach out to Josh Hawley and see if we can uh, uh, get him to respond. He'll get a staffer to respond to us <laughs> is what will happen. That's what happens when Stu you're... Stu Weber. Stu Weber. All right, well, we're close. All right, thanks for listening. Have a great day.